I want to pick up where we left off last time in chapter 2 of 2 Peter. We're talking about false teachers and false teaching. This is really the heart of Peter's great second letter, and he wraps the heart of this letter in terms of his warning against false teachers. He wraps it with the admonition that there's some things you must know, not only about false teachers, but you must know about your own salvation. There's things you must know. You must know the scriptures, and uh, you must know your sanctification. The whole point of that is is you, you must have knowledge of the truth. Um, it, it's to the point sometimes in my own life where as I meet people, I'm, I'm, I find myself almost reluctant uh, as I discover they're Christians uh, to engage in much dialogue about things of faith because I find that there are, is such a, a wide array of things that people believe these days. And there's so many, uh, in reality, so many uh, false teachings and aberrant kinds of things being taught, and people are believing so many strange things that it's, it, quite frankly, it just grieves my heart uh, when just talking with people and, and hearing overtly as well as even between the lines of what, what they're being taught and what they believe. It's difficult sometimes for me to even engage some people in conversation because I want to I wanna say, where, did, where is that in the Bible? And invariably they say, well, I, I, you know, I, I know it's there. I, I'm just not sure where, but I know it's there, and I believe that. I think it's critical that we be aware that uh, false teachers and false teaching abound in the church even today. In fact, probably more so today than any other time, especially with the, the availability of media and uh, just the Internet. There's all manner of things uh, being taught. So this is a particularly important chapter for us as we study it. It's 22 verses long. We're just launching into the first three verses we started last week. And I think it's a critical chapter for us. Uh, certainly Peter devotes a significant amount uh, of his uh, uh, writing to it. So I want us to be uh, pay close attention. Look with me at the first three verses again. Read those verses with me. I suggested to you last week, it's unfortunate there's a chapter break there that really verse 1 of chapter 2 should just continue on his thought, should in effect be verse 22 of chapter 1, because that transition word, but, he's talking about the God's prophets uh, bringing his word, and then he says, but there were also false prophets among the people. Not only did God have his prophets among the Israelites, but there were also false prophets just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. God is aware of what's going on. And he is going to be cleaning and whittling his church. But until that time, he wants us as Christians to be apprised of the fact that there are false teachers. He, Peter tells us very simply that false prophets, all the false prophets that the, that the Jewish people, not only in ancient Israel, but even in the time of Jesus, the false prophets that they had to endure... Uh, are just as as the same in the church. The false teachers the church has to endure. And Jesus said it would be that way. In Matthew's, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, it's called the Olivet Discourse. It's on the Mount of Olives. Jesus is talking about uh, his second coming and the end days and what it will be like and the signs of his coming and such. And he makes some comments about this issue of false prophets and teachers and says in verses 4 and 5, he says, watch out that no one deceives you. Apparently, there are going to be people who are going to try to deceive you. He says, watch out that no one deceive you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. Not maybe, they will deceive many. He says, watch out for them. 
in verse 11 of that same passage, again, he says, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And then if you drop down with me in verse 24, he says, for false Christ and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. So it's not just that the false teachers and false prophets will come with false messages, that they're going to come and they'll be able to do apparently miraculous things to lend credibility to what they say, and hence be very, very convincing. Jesus, Jesus says, watch out. They will be many, and they will deceive many. And Jesus really is looking ahead to the end times. And so from now on, Peter says, to the very end, expect false teachers. Expect false prophets. Don't be surprised when they come. Because they're going to come, he says, with subtle satanic deceptions. And they're going to do everything they can to deceive you. Everything they can to lead you astray. Everything they can. And they're not on the outside. What's scary is that they're on the inside. They're not only out there, but they're on the inside of the church. The Apostle Paul, in the book of Acts, in chapter 20, he is saying farewell to the Ephesians and to the Ephesian church and to the elders of the Ephesian church, and they've grown very close. He's spent much time with them, many years. And uh, they have just this intimate relationship. He's leaving. He uh, doesn't expect to see them again this side of heaven. And you read the account, and there's much weeping. They're hugging each other. They're hanging on to one another. And, and, and Paul warns them. In chapter 20, uh, verses 29 and 30, he says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. But not only that, he says, in verse 30, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Even on the inside. These false teachers are on the inside. They're not just on the outside. You look on the outside, and we know that the world is full of false teachers and false teaching. And we can pretty well spot that. But what's dangerous is the ones that are on the inside. The ones that you can't so easily spot. Paul wrote to the Galatians. In that marvelous Galatian letter, if you've never read it or studied it, meditated on it, it is a marvelous letter, and we may, in fact, study that uh, in the future. But in chapter 1, he wrote to the Galatians, and he said, look, who's, who's preaching to you another gospel? Paul had clearly preached to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had come to salvation under his, uh, under his teaching, under his ministry, and now he hears that Someone is preaching to them another gospel. And in chapter 3, he says, How could anybody lead you who have begun in the Spirit to think that you could be perfected in the flesh? Who's messing with your mind? Because there were people, and, and we know these people as the Judaizers. Uh, these were the legalists of the day. These who were uh, people who were just a, a, a troublesome, troublesome uh, uh, irritant in the life of the early church. Jude speaks of the same things. You see it again and again and again. If you turn to the book of Jude, that little tiny one chapter book right before the book of Revelations, Jude says the same thing. And if you read Second Peter and you read Jude, they really are parallel in their warnings, their contemporaries, if you will. Jude tells us the false teachers and false prophets secretly slip in. Verses 3 and 4, he says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, so he was going to remind them, remember that ministry of reminding? He was going to remind them about the, the salvation they share. He says, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. That word contend, you could also read that agonize. It's a very strong word in the Greek. Contend for the faith. I wanted to write to you about this, but... But, uh, but there's a danger, and, I, and so I'm going to write to you to contend for the faith. It's important that we, that we contend for that which has been delivered to us. He says in verse 4, For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago, notice this, have secretly slipped in among you. Secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into license 
for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. He says they secretly slip in. They, they get into the fellowship. You're hardly even aware of it. In fact, in verse 12, Jude sees them and he says, they're, they're even at your love feast. They're even at the table, the Lord's table, the communion table. They're right there at the table with you. They're like, they're like hidden reefs there to wreck you. Right in your love feast. Right at the Lord's table. They're intimate. They're close. He says they're subtle. They secretly slipped in. This is a prophecy. Peter's prophecy to the church. This is, a, this is reality. They're in the church today. All through the church. And as I suggested to you last time, the church tends to be somewhat oblivious and, and somewhat even witless to the reality of this grave danger. In Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council writes a letter to all the churches. Because again, these Judaizers have been going around unsettling the churches perverting the gospel of peace. And so in the letter that the Jerusalem Council writes and has delivered to all the churches, there is this statement in verse 24. He says, We are sorry, we are saddened, we are grieved to hear that some have come and disturbed you, unsettling your minds. Literally, it's unsettling your souls. Creating confusion and doubt and uncertainty in your life regarding who you are in Christ. The Apostle Paul, again in Romans chapter 16, he writes in verses 17 through 19, the same thing. He says, they're going to be there and you need to be alert to them, these false teachers. This is at the end of his Roman letter. This is a, this is a marvelous letter. and the, It's critical that the church in Rome be established because that's the center of his uh, missionary uh, strategy for the Roman Empire. And he writes to the church at Rome. He says, I urge you, uh, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. Be alert, be aware, but keep away from them. He says, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience and so I'm full of joy over you. But, he says, I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. I want you to pay attention. So again, the Apostle Paul warns the Roman church and indeed, by extension, warns us. So, beloved, it's always the case. It's in the past. Uh, Israel had to deal with it. They were there in the time of Jesus. They were there in the time of Peter. They're in the present, right down to the future, to the end, when Jesus comes back false teachers. They'll always be there, and they're there to infiltrate. They're there to infiltrate. Now, I want to look at three specifics. If you go back to Second uh, Peter chapter 2, our three verses, I want to look at three specific things. We're going to get to two of them this morning, and the last one I want to leave till next week, because there's so much there. It's really the heart of the matter. But I want to look at two of them this morning. The first one, when you talk about and think about uh, false teachers, it's important to know what is exactly the sphere of their operation. Where do they operate? What's their target, if you will? And verse 1 tells us, they were among the Jews, the Jewish people. He says, they will be where? Among you. They'll be among us. It's prophetic. They were among the church, the first century church, and they're going to be among every generation of the church. Now listen carefully. This kind of satanic false teacher that Peter is describing and writing about does not operate in a pagan environment. Please note that. Does not operate in a pagan environment. He has many operatives in the pagan environment. But the ones he's writing about here uh, who are people who are operating in the church. False teachers operating in the church Naming the name of Christ. Get a hold of that. 
This is serious. They're naming the name of Christ. They're, he says they're in your midst. They're in your Bible studies. They're in your fellowship. They're in your denominations. They're in your schools. They're in your churches. They're in your seminaries. They're in your pulpits. They're in your leadership. False teachers. That's the sphere. That's the sphere in which they operate. The church. They've gained positions of power. They've gained positions of prominence. They've gained positions of respect, honor, prestige, responsibility. They gain footholds in high places. They're prominent people in Christianity. They're not outsiders. They could be very well household names in Christianity. People recognize them. Say, oh, so-and-so, yes. And we do. We, we, and we embrace just about everybody who names the name of Christ. You know, our effort to be gracious, our effort to be tolerant, we embrace just about everybody who names the name of Christ. And when you have that mentality in the Christian church, it says, well, you know, we just accept them all. That subtly, beloved, that subtly opens the door wide open for Satan to come in. To come into the church and to deceive people and to damn people. Is this serious stuff? Absolutely. Is it imperative that every Christian be aware of these things? You say, well, how does this happen? How, does, how in the world does Satan get one of his operatives, one of his false teachers, into a significant ministry? How does that happen? Well, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. I want to show you. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. This is a real insight into Satan's strategy. Paul says in another place, we are not unaware of the schemes of the devil. He has a lot of schemes. And this is one particular scheme that he uses to get his false teachers into the church. In verse 2, Paul tells Timothy what? What does he tell him? What does he tell him? Preach the... Preach the... Preach the word. Timothy, you... Preach the word all the time, in season and out of season, when it seems fitting, when it doesn't seem fitting. All the time, preach the word. That's key. He says, correct, rebuke, encourage. The literal translation from the Greek of those three words are reprove, admonish, exhort. They're a little stronger. The NIV translation tones them down some. But they are much stronger words. Preach the word. Reprove. Admonish. Exhort. It doesn't say coddle. It doesn't say cajole. It doesn't say make them feel good, does it? It says, you know what it says? Here's a, here's a loose translation. Hammer it on them. Hammer on them. Correct them. Admonish them. Exhort them. With great patience and with careful instruction. Preach the Word. Preach the Word. Why? Why? He says because the time is going to come when they will not put up with what? Sound doctrine. They won't put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, Paul says, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And then in verse 4, they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. You say, well, how do you... How do you get to that last place? How do you get to that last part where, where the church and people in the church turn aside from the truth and turn to myths? How do you get there? It's a process. It's a process like everything else in life. It's a subtle thing. You've heard of the frog in the kettle? You know that analogy? You, know, you put a kettle on, a, on the stove and you put a frog in the kettle. It's in cold water and you slowly, ever so slowly turn up the heat. And before you know it, before the frog knows it, he's boiling. He doesn't even, it's no clue. It's the same principle. 
There's three steps in the process. Follow these steps with me, if you will. Step one. The first step is the church catches the flavor of the culture. Is there something wrong with that? The church catching the flavor of the culture? The church should be what? Flavoring the culture. We're the salt. That's right. We're the salt. We're to flavor. We're to make people thirsty. We're to, we're to be there to, to make a difference in the culture. And yet the church can catch, if you will, the flavor of the culture. And when it does, it begins to feel the world and it begins to enjoy the world. How many would be, how many would agree that there is a, a battle with the world and the flesh and, and worldliness and the things of the world? And Sure. So you understand that struggle. You understand that battle. But if you allow the world to win you over, if you give into it, then you're going to find that you do not want to put up with sound doctrine anymore. It's an inconvenience. You don't want strong preaching. You don't want correction. You don't want rebuke. You shy away from it. You don't want the word in season and out of season. And by the way, the word for sound doctrine is the word from which we get also the English word hygienic. You could translate that hygienic doctrine, healthy teaching, healthy doctrine, if you will. The teaching that brings health and wholeness, the kind of teaching that brings vitality and life and strength and maturity to the church. People, people won't want that once they, 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 they catch the flavor of the culture. They're not going to want that which is really healthy. But that's step one. The church begins to catch the flavor of the culture. It's not interested any longer in sound doctrine. It doesn't want strong biblical teaching anymore. No confrontation. No rebuke. No exhortation. Now leads us to step two in this process. What does it want now? It doesn't, we know what it doesn't want. What does it want? Well, they want teachers who will say what their itching ears want to hear. Literally, if you go back into the Greek text and see the literal translation, uh, Paul says that uh, they'll want that which will tickle the ear. What does that mean, tickle the ear? Teachers who say things that are easy. Teachers who say things that are pleasant. Teachers who say things that are positive and affirmative. Nothing that can be construed as negative. Don't be mean to me. I want to feel good. They want to hear things that make them feel good about themselves. You say, why? Why would people want to hear things, turn away from sound doctrine, and want to hear things that make them feel good about themselves? Verse 3 tells us, to suit their own, what? Desires. Or more literally, lusts. The strong word in the Greek, epithumia often translated lusts or desires, they want, very simply, they want men in the pulpit who will tell them what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. And we always want that, don't we? Just tell me something pleasant. Just tell me what I want. Just make me feel good. Don't tell me what I need. There's something in us that resists that. But once you catch the flavor of the culture... You find yourself resisting that which you need to hear and you start turning to people who tell you what you want to hear and that begins a downward spiral. Just like in Isaiah chapter 30, we looked at last week, verse 10. Give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Say pleasing things to us. Pastor, be a people pleaser. They're in the pastor around. They're in the preacher around that doesn't battle with that in his own flesh. I promise you. A people pleaser. Say things people want to hear. Get people to like you. I'm not even going to go there. I just had this flashing thought across my mind. I'm going to go there. 
feed our self-centered desires. Feed our lusts. They want teachers who will say what they want to hear, who will please them and who will give them what they want. And that's the word today. Lots of, lots of uh, seminars, lots of uh, books, lots of resources available to pastors today in, in terms of, of how to build your church. And, and, and largely it's focused on numbers. They say, if you want to, if you want to know what to preach, if you want to win people to your church, not the church, but to your church, if you want to know what to preach to win them, find out what they want to hear. Find out what they want. Find out where the community wants. And then just tell them what they want to hear. Now, it's not often said that blatantly, but uh, that's largely what comes across. That's tragic. And they play into the hands of their epithumia, their desires, their lusts, their self-centered desires, their own selfishness. And these people, as they turned away and they, and they, they, they turned to people who tell them they want, what they want to hear, they really aren't concerned about God at that point. They aren't concerned about worship. They aren't concerned about truth. They aren't concerned about being confronted regarding sin. They aren't even concerned that their lives honor God. They're concerned more and more and more about personal satisfaction. They're concerned about having their desires met. That's what the Bible says. They want the teacher to feed their ego, to make them feel good about themselves. They want to be entertained. They want to have their self-esteem bolstered. They want to be satisfied. They do not want teachers who will offend them. They do not want teachers who will do anything except entertain them. And so verse 3 says, and this is, this is a great way in which it's, it's worded, they will heap up. They will heap up for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears and feed their desires. One writer put it this way. He said, if they want a golden calf, there are plenty of ministerial calf makers who will accommodate them. There are lots of pastors, lots of preachers, lots of teachers who are doing this stuff. We have a lot of popular preachers like that today, in the, in, in, certainly in our country entertaining people, giving them messages of self-esteem, ego building, make them feel good about themselves. You say, well, aren't we supposed to feel good? There is no good thing in me that is in my flesh. There's nothing good to feel good. If I'm going to feel good about anything, it's the fact that God has saved me and he's put his spirit in me. That's my only hope. I have nothing to credit myself to God. If anything, I should be looking at my life and saying, Lord, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. And thank you for your grace and, and marvel and revel in his grace. and his mercy, you have been merciful to me. God, you have not given me what I deserve. You have rather given me that which I do not deserve. But people quite simply want to be entertained. They don't want to be confronted in any negative way. And step three, and the sad reality of it all is this, in step three, here's the result, playing right into the hands of Satan. Because what will happen is these people in demanding these things, demanding their ears be tickled, will indeed accumulate, Paul says, teachers who will turn their ears away from the truth. They will turn their ears away from the truth. And that word turn there means to twist or to dislocate. And once you're dislocated from the truth, you're wide open to Satan's influence. You're wide open to it. They want good feelings. They want sensations. They don't want anything deep or profound. They don't have to think too much. They don't want anything convicting or confronting. They don't want anything God-exalting. Beloved, 
the truth does not tickle your ears. Do you know that? The truth does not tickle your ears. The truth pounds on your ears. It burns your ears. That's the reality of it. So, in come the comedians. In come the false teachers. In come the psychologists and the self-esteem purveyors. In come the prosperity gospel preachers. And with them, Satan has moved right into the church. And that's right where he wants to operate. He moves right in. And the church is just clueless. Just absolutely clueless. And so Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, preach the Word. Preach the Word. Because as soon as you abandon preaching the Word and you give in to other things, Satan has just infiltrated the church. That's why he says it. This is, this is the guard. This is the guard. Preach the Word. Stand on the Word. Know the Word. It's as simple as that. And when Satan infiltrates the church, people are turned from the truth and they're turned to myths. How many know that you can, you can absolutely prove anything you want to prove using the Bible? You can. You can take any, any subject, any topic you want, you can lift verses, multiple verses, out of the context, disregard the principles, and apply them to your subject, and you can, you can support and prove any lie you want. That's why false teachers do it. So you say, well, how do we guard against this? Well, you've got to know the Word. You've got to know the truth about your salvation. That's where the, that's where the, the false teachers of, 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 of Jesus' day, and of Paul's day, and Peter's day were going around troubling those churches. Because there were some people who, who were a little fuzzy on terms of understanding their salvation. They weren't fully apprised of the Scriptures. They didn't know their sanctification. And they were primed for deception. You can prove anything. I mean, this is part of the reason why very rarely will I teach topically, because if I teach topically, I have my own biases to deal with, and my biases, I can support them very easily, and I can pick verses all over the map. So to protect me, and as well to protect you, I choose to teach through a book, word by word, phrase by phrase, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. I understand the background of the book, the context in which it's written, who it's written to, what are the historical, cultural circumstances, why is he saying what he's saying, the writer, what's the flow of thought. Because I can just as easily be a false teacher as like anybody else. This helps me. You say, people say, they come and they say, they say why, why do you go so slow? You can spend a month on one verse. <laughs> I said, because I'm afraid not to. The second, the second thing I want to get to is the, not only the sphere of his operation, but also talk to you about the subtlety. The subtlety of his operation, Satan's operation. What's the sphere of his operation? The church. He functions in the church. If he can confuse the church, if he can, if he can deceive the church, he just immobilized us. Now notice the subtlety. Verse 1 of our passage in 2 Peter says it very explicitly. They will, these false teachers, these emissaries, these operatives of Satan, he says, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Secretly. It's not going to happen in the open. You're not going to always be aware of it. They're going to secretly introduce these things. It's going to be subtle. Again, Jude talks about this very same thing. Parallel. Jude says they secretly slip in among you. You're unaware. They sneak in undercover. 
The verb used there in Jude 4 speaks of a clever pleader attempting to beguile a judge or a criminal secretly sneaking back to a place from which he was banished. Can you see him skulking and sneaking and slithering? and just like a snake. The word to slip in means to go down into and alongside. Ooh, it's a very intimate word. Go down into and alongside. A very vivid picture. They come down in and alongside you. They're in the garb of a shepherd. Jesus said something about that, didn't they? They come to you in sheep's clothing, wolves in sheep's clothing. They come in the garb of a shepherd. You think, my shepherd, my pastor, my teacher. They smuggle in, creeping along under cover to get alongside you. They're never straightforward. They don't tell you the truth. They're not honest. They're deceptive, sneaky, undercover. You say, are you overstating this? No, not at all. I'm not overstating the case whatsoever. They parade themselves as Christians. They parade themselves as pastors. They parade themselves as preachers, evangelists. They parade themselves as teachers. They sneak in. It's never overt. It's always covert operations. Undercover. That's why it's so tragic when the church makes a virtue out of tolerance to the point where it is so tolerant that it becomes intolerant of the truth. We just accept it all. We Well, because you name the name of Christ, you're welcome. Yeah, come on in. But we're oblivious and we're not listening. We're not paying attention. Do you remember what Luke says about the Bereans in Acts, the book of Acts? They were more noble than the Thessalonians. Little tiny village, little tiny town. Paul goes in and preaches. The Bereans are more noble for they searched the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. Keeping Paul honest. They come in as sneaky deceivers with their destructive heresies. Literally, they're heresies of destruction or heresies that damn. They're heresies that damn people. That word heresy, by the way, it's translated many times in the New Testament by the English word sect, S-E-C-T. Like the Pharisees, the sect of the Pharisees. It's even used uh, in reference by the critics of Christianity. They called it, called Christianity a sect. When, they, when the critics were, were wanting to discount Christianity, the, the word in its original meaning means that which is an opinion. So when you trace the, the meaning of the word heresy back, it started out meaning that which is an opinion, and it came to mean a self-designed religious opinion. And there's lots of people full of opinions today. And religious opinions, aren't there? Even in the church. So that's what heresy is. It's not the truth. It's somebody's concoction. And that's a sense that's used most often, the idea of a sect that has concocted its own idea of truth, and that very simply is heresy. These self-invented opinions. The Apostle Paul says these self-invented opinions lead to divisions. They lead to uh, all manner of factions and dissent in the church, splitting of churches. These people come into the church with their own humanly devised stuff and they divide the church. They fracture the church. And they're doing it. They're doing it all over the place. All over the place. All in the name of Christ. That's the thing that's most furying. All in the name of Christ. And the people who stand for truth, and if you, if you stand for what's true, if you're willing to name the names of these people, You are condemned. How dare you say something against so-and-so? That's like you're talking against the Pope. 
Well. <laughs> These are destructive heresies. The word literally means damnation. Damnation. Heresies that damn people. In fact, the word is used five times in Second Peter, twice in verse 1 and once in verse 3. He wants us to understand how dangerous these things are. So that's their subtlety. They sneak into a church that's oblivious. A church is kind of witless to these things. Introduce popular new ideas that tickle the ears of the hearers and turn them away from the Word of God. And ultimately, they begin then to pervade their error in it damned souls. What it assumes also is that the church has unsaved people in it that can be duped. Every church, every church, there are people sitting in those churches who, who are not saved and who hear these kinds of things and listen to this kind of false teaching, and they can be duped. It's amazing that probably even many Christians can be duped. Many Christians can be faked out. But they can't be brought to destruction, only those who are not true Christians. But what happens is you get, you get this popular, popular teaching, and then you, you find people, uh, it becomes the rage to go to this church or that church because of what's being taught, the popular kind of stuff. People want to hear it and tickles their ears. And it's fun. It's exciting. It's titillating. And then, then, then what happens right after that? is the church begins to be populated uh, with non-Christians, false Christians. False Christians. And this is really, this is really where he gets them. They come for their entertaining, they come for their psychologizing, they come for their self-esteem building, teaching. And these teachers are men-pleasers, they're Satan-pleasers, they're not God-pleasers. And people perish. People perish. Now I'm going to stop right here because the next point is really the heart of the matter. And I have much to say on it, as you might well imagine. But it's so important. I don't want to rush through it. I was tempted to add the third point, and, uh, but I would have to rush through it, and it's such a critical issue, the heart of the matter. You can read ahead, by the way, in those three verses, and you can try to figure out what the third point is going to be. But I think, I think it will shock you when we begin to study through it. I think it will shock you as you begin to put it together in your mind. As I said, I don't want to be rushed, so we'll leave that third point till next time. But I want you to think on these things. And then next week, uh, we have a, a tremendous opportunity. Next week, uh, we're going to uh, look at our memory verses. Aren't you excited? So you have uh, same memory verses last week. You had another week to practice them. And next week, I have a new bag of candy. And uh, we'll be uh, moving about through the congregation, and we'll be welcoming those who uh, share our memory verses. So let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word, which is the truth. Help us, Lord, to be people of your word, people of your book, people of the truth. Help us, Lord, to be searching the scriptures daily to hear, to see if the things we're hearing are, in fact, true. We thank you for Peter's warning. We thank you for Jesus' warning. We thank you for Paul's warnings. Lord, they're all through the scriptures. There were false prophets among the people of Israel. There were false prophets in Jesus' day. There were false teachers in Peter's day and Paul's day, upsetting the churches, distorting the truth. And there are false teachers in our day. God, give us a wise and discerning heart. Increase our hunger for your word to know the truth as we meditate on it, as we study it, as we memorize it, Lord that we can recognize error and we can resist it. 
Lord, that we can uh, convey the truth to those who are perishing. Simple truth. That salvation, the free gift of God, is a grace gift. It comes by faith. That you do love your creation. You don't want any to perish. And Lord, that you are at work in our lives and you are working out your will and we can trust you. You seal us for the day of redemption. Lord, thank you for the, for the hope that you've given to us. Thank you that it's your peace that guards our mind and hearts in days of, of terror to this world. Thank you that we don't have to be anxious for anything. Thank you that we can come to you and can we bring our requests and we bring them with thanksgiving and that your peace will guard our mind and heart. Oh, Lord, how we love you. How we worship you this morning. Keep your heads bowed for just a couple more moments, if you would. I want to take a moment or two and just offer a gift of salvation to some people. There may be one or two or three or more people here this morning. You come today and maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're not sure. Maybe you've heard lots of things and maybe you've taught, been taught some things and you're not sure about those. But one thing you are sure of is that you're a sinner. You're a sinner. That's true of all of us. The Bible says that all of us, all of us have sinned. All of us fall short of God's standard of perfection. No one's exempt. We've all broken his laws. We're all guilty before him. And The problem is, is that how are we going to deal with it? What's to be done? We know in human relationships that when we sin against somebody that there's distance in that relationship and there's a need for forgiveness and reconciliation. But unless you, the sinning part, go to that person you've sinned against and say, I sinned against you, would you forgive me? There can never be closure in that relationship. And just like we know that in temporal relationships, it's true in our relationship with God. We've all sinned against God. And we go to him and say, God, I've sinned against you. I'm sorry, truly sorry. I'm willing to repent. I'm willing to turn away from my sins. And I ask you to forgive me. And God is willing. You see, the Bible says it. The Bible says God so loved his, the world that he gave, he gave his most precious possession, his one unique son. He gave him over to death, death on a cross. See, the penalty of sin, the Bible says, is death. We're going to pay for sin one way or another. Either we're going to pay for it individually forever and ever and ever in a place called hell, eternal punishment, because we've offended an infinite, eternal God. So you can never pay pay that off. Or you turn to Jesus, who's already paid the price, and you you take him up on his offer for for forgiveness. See, it's up to us. The decision is laid out before us. Now, I want to pray a prayer in just a moment, just a short prayer of commitment that says, God, I, I, I am a sinner, and I want you to forgive me. I'm going to put my faith in Jesus that he died for my sins. He died in my place on that cross. But I'm not going to pray that prayer all by myself. I, I want to know if there's at least one person who wants to pray it with me. I'm already a Christian. And if you want to pray that prayer, then while everybody else's heads are bowed, you can just signal me. You can let me know just by looking up at me. And as our eyes meet, I'll know and I'll ask you, is that why you're looking up? And you'll nod and say, yes, that's why I'm looking at Pastor. I want to pray that prayer. So do that now. If you want to pray, if you want to give your life to Jesus, if you want to have your sins forgiven, you want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt today that if you died today, you would go to heaven. You ready to pray that prayer? Just look up at me now. Anybody at all? Is that why you're looking up? Yes. God bless you. Thank you. Anybody else? Let our eyes connect. If you're looking up at me in the back and I can't see, just wave your hand. If I don't know, is that where you're looking at? Okay, good. God bless you. Is that where you're looking up at me? You want to pray? Is that where you're looking up back there? Anybody else? 
way. It's dark way in the back. I can't hardly see. Okay, one last chance. Anybody else? You're looking up because you want to receive the Lord this morning. Okay, we have two people this morning looked up, so I'm going to ask you to do something now, okay? Why don't you come up and stand here right with me? Come on now. Come on. One. We have two two people. Okay. Come on down here. All right. What's your name? Audrey. Audrey. God bless you, Audrey. God bless you, man. Your name? Joe. Joe? Good good to meet you, Joe. All right. Now I'm going to pray a prayer, but you make it your prayer, okay? I'll pray it out loud. We'll just do a phrase at a time, and you just repeat right after me. Now God's looking in your heart right now, and he knows where you are. This is between you and him. All right? So you pray this prayer. God. God. I confess that I'm a sinner. I confess that I'm a sinner. And I ask you to forgive me. I have sinned against you. I've gone my own way. I've gone the way of the world. I've been disobedient. I've been prideful. I've been selfish. Please forgive me. I am truly sorry. And I repent. I turn away from my sins. I believe in Jesus. And I believe that Jesus died on that cross in my place. I believe he was buried and he rose from the dead after three days to bring new life. So, God, I receive that new life as a a free gift this morning. Come live in me by your Holy Spirit. Fill me, Lord, with your life in your power. Strengthen me so that I can live my life for you and for your glory all my days. God, thank you for saving me today. Thank you for bringing me here today. And thank you for loving me. And I call you my Father. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. God bless you. God bless you.